Hello, I'm Jonathan Carwest. I'm Andrew Walker. And welcome to LGIU Fortnightly. Andrew, it's been a while since uh, Ingrid and Jen let us play with the podcast. Yeah, it has indeed. It's our first go of 2020. How's how's 2020 working out for you so far? Well, so far for me, other than moving house just before Christmas, actually 2020 is remarkably similar to the end of 2019. Yeah, I think that... Well, is it? Is it, though? There's a serious question. Thinking about politics, thinking about local government, it seems to me that one of the big questions is, is 2020 just more of the same? Or are we in a kind of new era new government, new decade, big you know, majority, big radical agenda. It's not entirely clear to me. So there's lots of rumours of various plans that the government might have or intends to have at or some, might not some have. point soon, or might not have. So there are rumours swirling around what will be in a devolution white paper. There are yeah. rumours swirling around the social care paper of some kind. But so, and, and the government keeps on talking as though it's going to do lots of really radical stuff particularly in terms of devolution, it's going to level up um, different regions and different places across the country. But is that really going to be the case? I don't know. I mean, I think, look, they clearly mean it. You know, I think they, I think there is a very clear signal through the Queen's speech, through some of the media messaging, that this is a new government. This is not a continuation of the, of the previous administration. This is a new government, a new agenda with a, a big majority. It's going to get Brexit done. You know, it's got a big majority with a lot of votes, a lot of constituents and a lot of MPs in the north of England that it has to respond to. And I think that's reflected in some of the conversation around levelling up. So it seems to me there are big plans and big intentions. I'm not sure how much detail, how much thinking there is behind that. And, you know, one of the differences compared to other governments that have come in with a big majority, so thinking about the, the, the Blair government in 97, thinking about the Thatcher government, in 1979, they had quite detailed programs. Quite a lot of kind of groundwork had been done. You knew yeah. what those governments yeah. were going to do. They, you know, Blair government had spent half of them had spent years at IPPR. You know, Thatcher had, had Keith Joseph and Institute for Policy Studies, Adam Smith Institute. It seems to me there's not quite so much of a sort of hinterland, intellectual yeah. hinterland behind this government. And and the, and the manifesto deliberately and and successfully and you know was clearly politically astute mm. was pretty light yeah it was a pretty pretty much a kind of don't don't put up any hostages to fortune yeah um but i think that means it's much less i'm not saying that thinking isn't there but it's not it's not public in the same way yeah so it's much less clear what the agenda of this government is at the same time i think you know there are going to be changes so we're leaving the european union that that reconfigures the economy that changes you know, for local government that conceivably, we, again, we don't know, but might change procurement regulations, might change uh, you know, environmental standards, might change all sorts of things. But I think there's also, you know, it seems to me that one of the other things that has changed is that we have a government that, you know, we know that it's going to be here for five years. And that means that a lot of the problems that it might have been quite you know, understandable to kick into touch in the past. Yeah. So you mentioned social care. So, yeah, that's a bit groundhog day. Oh, we're going to have a social care green paper this year. Well, that's what we heard this time last year. Well, yeah, yeah but actually this time last year, it sort of made sense just tactically, if nothing yeah. else, to kick it into, into touch. We know that this government is going to be here for five years. It is highly likely under current trends that social care will fall over within that five years. So they're going to have to do something. Mm -hmm. So I think it does feel to me that they're, you know, even if there isn't a developed agenda right now, there will have to be because this government 
is in it by definition is in it for the long haul yeah and is therefore going to have to respond to some of the problems that we know are coming down the track yeah i think the other way in which it's 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 potentially Groundhog Day, is that we are also hearing lots of rumours around reorganisation, local government yeah. reorganisation. Um, and some of them are unsubstantiated and some of them are contradictory. Um, and so local government is once again left in a position where they sort of have to guess um, and, and be ready to be flexible and to be quite fleet of foot. Yeah. Um, in order to try and make the best of what the government offers or what the Absolutely. government demands. Absolutely, and, and I think that is the key point, because, again, it's this point that there may not be a very developed plan right now, or there may be a secret developed plan, I don't know, but things might change quite quickly. So mm -hmm. if we have a deep, you know, again, it's like the same, the government realising that they've got to do you know, something about local government finance, something about levelling up, something about rebalancing the economy needs to happen within this parliamentary term you could get very rapid movement. Mm. It seems to me that if, if you have a scenario in which they, there's going to be very rapid and potentially quite unpredictable movement, yeah. and there's not a particular, as yet a particularly fixed agenda for that, then absolutely, as you say, local government needs to have a kind of narrative already so that it can try and shape that change, so that it can try and respond to that change. I think, yeah, and we always say this, we said this around the devolution process in 15, but I think we were right. You've got to be prepared. You've got to have a narrative ready to go. You've got to have a sense of where you want yeah. to go and what you think the shape should be and how you could work with others to achieve that. Otherwise, things will just be done to you. Yes. And they might be anyway, but if you don't have a view and a vision, then they certainly will be. Then yeah. you've got no chance. Yeah. Particularly as, I mean, we know that the general view of local government within central government in as much as there is a sort of a, a coherent view is that you know councils are an, a, an instrument by which to make central government policy this is this is how the sort of councils are largely viewed i think by policymakers in whitehall and the result of that is that when we do have or when we have had reorganization or decentralization um, in the past, it's always been very piecemeal and ad hoc and asymmetrical. And yeah. that's because it doesn't represent part of a coherent strategy to the regional governance of the UK. It represents a, a tool by which to achieve certain aims, whether that's around economic right. growth, whether that's around, you know, quite sort of political aims around sort of shoring up your vote in the north, whether it's about accountability or public services. Yeah. It's not part of a of a whole and coherent strategy. No, that's that's true historically, and that may continue to be true. But I but I also think we should take seriously the possibility that it might not, that it could be different. Because it seems to me that one of the lessons you would learn from the last round of devolution, uh, unfortunately, I think, because we argued strongly, and I, I still think that a, a kind of deal-based approach where it looks different in different places and there's mm -hmm. no one template that feels right to me. But the reality is that for, for all sorts of reasons that we've rehearsed before, that didn't work very well. And it didn't work very well for some of the areas you might expect the government to be concerned about, particularly sort of county areas. Um, we don't have any county devo deals. It didn't, you know, there were lots were on the table. None of them worked. I wonder if the lesson you take from that as a government is, well, actually then we decide and we need to just do it and just have a... Now, I, I hope not, but I think 
you know, I think we ought to take that possibility seriously and be prepared for that possibility and be prepared yeah. to counter it. I guess one of the things that you look to around that, though, is how much willingness and capacity there is in central government, particularly in you know, the Conservative Party and in the government itself, to take that fight on. Yeah, because I mean, that, that's, still that's big... one that requires a lot of institutional capacity sure. and space, but and a, you're lot of, a, lot a lot of political of will. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, but again, you know, it's a government with an 80 seat, whatever it is, 80 odd seat majority. They could do that. They have the kind of political capital to do that. Whether they choose to spend that capital in that way is, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah. But it's, I don't know. I mean, so, this is all a very long way of saying that, you know, stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe. Yes. But we don't know how, when, what. But here at LGIU, there's other exciting things afoot. Yes. This is, by the way, precisely why they don't let us do the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what are we meant to be talking about? We're meant to be telling people about all the exciting things we're doing at LGU. Yeah. So we have recently launched a new website that brings together lots of the elements of our international work. Yeah, so you know, as regular listeners will know, as well as LGU England and Wales, we run LGU Scotland, LGU Ireland, and more on this in a second. Next month we're launching LGU Australia, yeah. which is very exciting. And we've brought all of that together into, into one website so that we integrate content across uh, all of those territories. You, know, you still have stuff that's specific to individual countries, but there's also content that's internationally relevant. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're going to be increasingly doing that right here on this very podcast. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I guess the, the rationale for that is that at LJU, we believe in localism. You know, so we believe that often complex problems are best solved locally you know, through the innovation and energy of, of local people but we believe in local government we believe in local government as the the institutional form that facilitates and legitimizes localism but we also think that local government needs to learn and needs to be from, from from other other bits of local government from other sectors we think local government needs to be engaged informed connected and that there are things that we can learn from other countries where they're struggling mm -hmm. with some of the same challenges that we have yeah. and that local government everywhere in the world will be better and more effective if it understands more about the bigger context. Not least because many of the issues local government grapples with are global, whether that's economic change, whether that's demographic shifts, whether that's climate change. You know, yeah. There's a whole set of big global issues that come home to roost locally for local government and actually un having a more global understanding of how to tackle those we think um is, is hugely valuable so yeah. you, you know that's the kind of impetus behind our, our international work and we want to reflect that on this podcast perhaps a bit more than we have done hitherto so yeah. if you love that idea or you hate that idea uh, do let us know we are still running the podcast survey yeah which you can you can help us by by fulfilling. It takes about seven. Ingrid says it takes around seven minutes. It's quite a precise. It's quite a precise yeah. around. But um, but if, if you would like to fill that in, then please go to lgiu.org forward slash pod survey. Okay. Uh, and and why should people do that? What's well, in it for them? Not just not only because you'll be helping us out, but actually every month that the survey is open, we're going to pick a winner who will win. Drum roll, an LGIU fortnightly mug. Whoa. Actually, these are not just mugs. These are very... Um, they're not just of mugs. Of the moment. What else are they? Well, I think they're, they're, they're dispose not disposable. Disposable mugs. They're not disposable. <laughs> they are not disposable yes, mugs. Yes, bucking they're, the trend. No, they're <laughs> reusable coffee mugs. Ah. 
You mean they're a mug? Yeah, but they're the travel mugs. Oh, I mugs see, that you I can see. take with yeah. you. Yes, obviously all mugs are reusable. Yeah. They're, they're mugs that you can take when you go to the coffee shop. Can and you just a... reuse them for a fortnight and then you have to get a new one? Huh. No, no, they're permanent. <laughs> permanent. Um, uh, so you, you know, you go to you go to the coffee uh, shop of your choice, yeah. and you ask for your latte or your cappuccino or your double espresso or your flat white or whatever you or your tea uh, or whatever you like or your spiced chai uh, latte if you must, um, and you can put it in your own cup. You know the things, travel mugs. I know, I know the coffee things. Yeah, I've seen them. They're very cool. Anyway, you would, you know. It's worth winning. Anyway, we're not here to talk about um, coffee mugs today. We're going to be we covering... Well, we are I mean, I guess we are because that's what we've been doing. But, um, we'll be covering uh, the latest from our blogs and briefings, and we'll have a bit of a roundup from recent daily news across our member countries, which, as you said, Jonathan, is soon to launch Down Under in Australia. Yeah. And, in fact, this week, Ingrid had a chat with Luke Nichols, who is the principal and partner at SGS Planning, who are our partners, our partners in, in Australia. Australia. They had a really interesting conversation, partly about the launch of LGIU Australia, but actually also about lessons that can be drawn from the bushfires in Australia yeah. And, yeah. and local governments and local communities' role. A fascinating conversation, so, so let's hear from Luke. So Luke, really excited to see you here in our offices. This is not where you're based. We're based in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and we're partnering with LGIU to establish LGIU Australia. So exciting. Tell us a little bit about you guys and what you do. We're a public policy consulting firm, and we're um, quite well known across Australia, and we do a lot of public sector consulting with, um, with government agencies and local councils, uh, and we saw the opportunity to get involved more in establishing and developing local government policy. In Australia, there's, um, there's 500 um, odd councils, um, whether they be local Aboriginal councils or smaller smaller rural councils or quite large developed metropolitan councils. Um, so there's a, a wide range of council types um, and uh, they work largely in state-based systems and there's states like New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland. So they're, they're all often very fragmented uh, and um, we see the opportunity that we can start a national debate uh, and discussion about policy that can benefit all of them in a way that really doesn't happen in Australia at the moment. Luke, we were talking in the office earlier about the bushfires and it won't have escaped anyone's notice here in the UK about what a devastating Christmas people had in Australia with fires on a scale that people can't remember at any rate. Um, we were talking a bit about how the fire service is structured in Australia. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the um, I mean, local government has, has a role to play uh, in, in particularly New South Wales, where I'm from, um, and uh, in supporting the Rural Fire Service. Um, and the Rural Fire Service is the frontline agency that fights bushfires, but the local authorities uh, provide funding um, for the, uh, the RFS in the local area, uh, and they also provide support services for those um, those firefighters. Often, um, the majority of firefighters in the Rural Fire Service are, um, are volunteers from the local communities, uh, and councils very much get involved in supporting those volunteers. So um, it's 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 been um, a, a pretty effective way for local communities to um, mobilise um, when a bushfire comes, and it doesn't come all the time, um, but. What we've seen over the last couple of months in Australia is just the huge scale um, of the bushfires, 
the extent across a number of states uh, and just the um, uh, the stretch that's been put on a voluntary fire fighting service um, uh, in actually fighting those fires for such a long period of time. So um, I'd, I'd say that there's going to be obviously a lot of lessons learned about what's happened over the last couple of months. But I think the idea that having to deal for such a long period of time with fighting fires on so many different fronts, may we, we should maybe look at the model for, for how we support those firefighters. I think that's just so important. We, we have in the UK retained firefighters, a bit like the voluntary um, fire service. A lot of people don't know about that, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be. And so it'd be really interesting to look at that. But I mean, we don't have a lot of fires here in the UK, at least on that kind of scale yes. that, that you've had in Australia. But we do have other environmental factors, flooding, um, which the retained firefighters would be attending. Yes, yes. yes. Um, I assume, you know, I mean, you're having massive rain right now in Australia mm, and presumably so. with with yes. the runoff and um, the lack of vegetative matter holding the yes, soil back. Yes, you know, the flooding yes. may be an issue for you too, and they'll be yeah. a part of that. I think there's lots of lessons for all of us to learn about how we engage with the public um, yes. and how we get people to volunteer and yes, yes. react and come out and have that kind of community effort. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I don't know if you have any tips, oh, but yeah. maybe we'll, we can all learn from each other on this one. Yeah, I think Australia's got a good... Um, history of volunteerism I suppose um, and for floods and other storm events we'd have the, the state emergency services that are, are, um, have a state structure but also have um, a high voluntary um, personnel component so, so you'd actually have uh, our structures are very volunteer based depending on what sort of emergency um, it could be um, and it often then works closely with the coordination by the police and others of, of those different agencies so so yeah so floods or fires um, it, it's high focus on volunteerism um, obviously you get to the point where um, if these are more frequent or more extensive like we've seen um, it puts a lot of pressure on a volunteer structure and you really need to to move towards having um, more resources available more permanently into these uh, emergency services areas which isn't something I think um, we've had to deal with um, before so so I think you'd see a movement um, to more um, permanent resourcing um, available for some of these emergency services than is available at the moment. Um, I think we, I mean, I'm no expert in bushfire fighting, but you did see um, in, in Australia a big discussion about having water bombing resources available and planes available and uh, when there was a limited amount of those resourcing and they needed to be in multiple states mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, there was a squeeze on what we were able to um, put in the field um, and um, we were borrowing resources from inter uh, other countries, which normally happens, I think, as well. So, so, But the idea that you have permanent aerial firefighting uh, equipment and more of it, I think would be something that you'd definitely see. So, uh, so definitely a lot more. Um, uh, local authorities would need to um, think about their role. I know I used to be uh, at uh, Blue Mountain City Council, which is a is a very high bushfire risk area, um, and the council had 
gone much further than lots of other local authorities in its bushfire management programs. So council was managing uh, hazard reduction burns in addition to the Royal Fire Service and National Parks uh, it, and also managing Crown land, which often has a lot of bushland on it, um, and putting fire trails in and other things like that. So you had a council in Blue Mountains that had, because of the history of being hit by major bushfire emergencies before, uh, had, been, had seen one of its roles as providing a much higher level of support for the, the state firefighters um, and um, I think you sh one thing that may come out of this is other local authorities may need to see how much they actually put into uh, bushfire management themselves. Which kind of brings us back to the point of why we're partnering to help share some of that learning and yeah. a practice across Australia and, and beyond mm. to say, okay, you know, what one council has done, yes. another council can learn from, and absolutely vice versa. Oh yeah, there's there's a huge opportunity for that. I mean, in these areas, often um, often bushfire recovery um, is not thought of as much. Um, so often the focus is on fighting the fire, um, safety, and things like that. Um, but um, actually, the recovery could go on for years for communities that have been affected by these. Um, these fires, so people have lost their houses, their communities have been um, affected by a, a massive trauma, um, and so the actual social recovery is really important, as well as the sort of physical rebuilding sort of side of these um, emergencies. So, and that's a, an area where local authorities here, as well as in um, in, in Australia, have a lot of. Um, community development resources that, that could be applied to that type of recovery. And, I mean, and who expertise. else would be doing that? Yeah, That's right. And, uh, and it's a very much a close working relationship with communities. Um, I know in Australia there's proposals now for um, the federal government and state agencies to get much, much more involved in that recovery process. But I think the ability for councils to um, um, target that resources best would be really important. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see how that story develops about exactly what you've said about sharing that emergency planning, emergency action learning, also community redevelopment, because there's, let's face it, there's lots of communities that have experienced something devastating, whether it be the loss of industry or being burnt or flooded. Um, and we can all learn from what that looks like and how communities can yeah. come together and rebuild. Yeah, and uh, I suppose the the focus on resilience and community resilience and uh, is something that would be common internationally um, and there's definitely a very heavy focus on that in local government in, in Australia and maybe there'll be some learnings from that for UK local Oh, families. definitely, yeah. definitely there will be and so it's our members here, new members in Australia yeah. can, can learn from that. Yes, but yeah, we're really excited um, about the expansion of LGIU in Australia uh, and uh, we've um, been working on a lot of content and a lot of papers and briefings and uh, and there's a huge amount going on in local authorities that um, of best practice and case studies that would be really useful uh, here as well uh, but also we've been uh, busily mining the information from the UK as well to look at all the examples that would be applying in Australia and there's a huge amount of stuff that would, um, would, would be really appropriate for councils. So when is that? When are we? When's our launch day? When's our go live? The end is um, we're launching the prototype, which is a, a free trial, which will be for three or four months of trial. Um, local authorities will get that free. Anyone who wants to sign up um, and see, and they'll get the full package of uh, access to the Australian content, but also the international content, uh, and that'll be going live at the end of February. Wow. Okay. Very much looking forward to that. That's great. So are we. <laughs>
Thanks, Luke. Thanks very much. So, you know, hopefully that gives people a sense of, you know, what it is we're planning to do in Australia and why. Uh, working with SGS as partners out there, looking to provide a similar sort of service for Australian councils to that which we provide here, but also trying to generate more learning, more interaction, more relationships and engagement between between councils here and in Australia. And I think, you know, some of the stuff Luke was saying around, you know, obviously we don't have bushfires in the UK, but we do, you know, we do see councils. We saw it with the flooding before Christmas. We we see councils having to respond to emergency situations, having to both to be that kind of first responder uh, and indeed in a more long term. You know, and you've done a lot of work on this in the past, you know, building resilience within communities, yeah, yeah. building preventative measures. You know, that is a, a crucial function yeah. of local government. And I mean, lots of the work is done, you know, before before there's a crisis, before, you know. Well, ideally. Lots of it is about preparation. Yeah, yeah yes, right. Or should be. Should be. And so I think you have some really interesting lessons from Australia there. Other lessons on a more day-to-day level, we've been talking on our blog about reading skills. Yeah, speed speed reading which are, for, are really for counselors. pretty important. So part of yeah. what I guess what the the service a big part of the service that we provide is that sort of you know the briefings on on long and quite dense and detailed policy documents. Yes, um, because you know it does take a lot of time to, to and, read and, this and, stuff. and in that sense, we're both part of the solution and part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And that that precisely what we try and do with LJU briefings is to sort of cut through forests of sort of prose and yeah. papers and yeah. tell you what really matters so that you can read something short and to the point. Nonetheless, we're still producing written material. We're still, yeah. you yeah. know, producing stuff that has to be worth doing. And we're very conscious that, you know, one of the big challenges people find when they become counsellors is just... Yeah, how much the, you are required. Yeah, the immense volume of stuff you have to read. In Not fact, in the most scintillating prose, perhaps. With apologies to the government officers, that 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 is necessarily true. I think yeah. so. There's a vast amount to read, and and actually a lot of people really struggle with that. In fact, you know, in many cases it isn't. You know, some, and I do that. Like sometimes I go to council meetings, and you see the sort of pile of papers. It is not. It's not possible to get through all yeah. that in detail. So people need to develop strategies. You know, reading strategies around sort of cherry picking information, skim reading, knowing when you can do that, when you can't do that. Yeah. That's all genuinely quite hard and, and one of the training courses we run here at uh, at LGIUHQ and indeed we we provide this in-house if, if people if people want it so it is always worth checking out the, the learning and development section on our website and you can see what, what the courses we run for counsellors are um, but one of them is on is on uh, reading for speed and retention yeah um, and we've got a long read somewhat ironically on the website which which talks people through um some of those techniques and some of the ways of doing that. Fantastically useful, I think. In other news, getting Brexit done. Getting Brexit. Now, somebody is it, is it had, the beginning I've heard of the that end, before. Or is yeah. it the end of the beginning? Now, I think whatever you, whatever one's views of Brexit, and it, it, is a, it is an issue that has divided the country, uh, but I think everyone can unite around the fact that Janet has done a heroic job oh, yeah. um, covering all the ins and outs of the Brexit debate all the sort of implications for local government yeah, over, yeah, you know, since the referendum in 2016. I suspect it's taken years of her life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is this is uh, 
her, her latest blog, yeah. uh, which is based on a longer uh, a longer briefing that's exclusive to LGU members. And everyone will be really excited to know that the real Brexit work may only just be beginning. Yeah, they may not yeah. want to hear that, but it it's it's true, I'm afraid. So yeah. so Janet looks, you know, making the case, you know, local government is not talked about much in Brexit, but it's a hugely important issue mm. for local government. Not just in, as I said earlier, not just in terms of reshaping the economy, but also yeah, procurement regulations, environmental standards. Janet kind of sets that out. We don't know, of course, we still don't know any of the answers as to what all of that will look like in in whatever eventual deal we sign at the end of this year um, or not. Uh, but Janet sets out, you know, what what the issues are, when the sort of crunch points in terms of that those negotiations are happening, and I think just really helpful to kind of have that all brought together from a local government perspective. So, yep. sorry, Janet, and well done. Um, regular listeners will know that we publish um, regular member-only briefings that provide intelligence and insight for local government. Um, and so we've got a few examples of things that we've published recently over the past couple of weeks. Um, earlier this week, we published a briefing looking at how UK towns are determining their futures. Yep which is based on a piece of work, in fact, it's written by, is it not, the Carnegie Trust? Uh, a piece of work they've done, a report they've done called Turnaround Towns UK, uh, where they look at nine uh, towns across the country to look at how they have, you know, towns which have had challenges you know, around their economic base, around nature de demographic, around, of course, cuts to local authorities mm. and the services that that's, they support. Um, so towns, nine towns which they think are finding innovative solutions to some of those challenges. Yeah. It seems to me the big emphasis here is around a really clear narrative. Yeah, that's what I took from this, the, the, this report, is that it's, it's about having a clear analysis of what it is that's changed, you know, what has got worse, or why that is, what sits behind that, and a really clear shared narrative developed with the community yeah. about where, where they want to go. And, you know, perhaps controversially, it seems to be one of the conclusions here is that it doesn't matter whether you're there or not. You know, and they're, they're very clear that not all of these towns have completed that journey and, and not all of them would be, you know, universally recognised by their, by their residents as a great place to live. But the turning point is that shared narrative, yeah. is that agreement yeah. about where they want to get to. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I found it particularly interesting because I'm doing lots of yeah. work at the moment looking at place shaping and around the sort of the place narrative for councils and right so, and, and that idea of how you you use use the place that you are as a as an asset um and and you you, you recognize what it is and you understand what it is that makes the place unique uh, and you build on that you don't try and make it necessarily something that it's not you don't try and you know what's the old joke about you know how do you get there well i wouldn't start from here you know, you, yeah. you, you recognise where it is that you are and where you want to get to uh, and, and you build, yeah, your, you, you build your, your journey accordingly. I, I was at a conference recently where someone quoted Dolly Parton. Uh -huh. us, and Dolly Parton apparently said that the secret to success to in life is work 9 to 5, but also, um, she said, learn who you really are and then do it on purpose. Ah. She was full of wisdom, isn't she? She Dolly. Is. She's very popular in local government, Dolly Parton. I've noticed that. I've noticed lots more people in local government are fans of Dolly Parton than I think elsewhere. Is, is that, that's my is that that's a my fully, fully, fully <laughs> statistically valid fact? Yeah, and you've heard it here first. Okay. Um, Based on my survey of... Dozens. Dozens, literally dozens. 
Literally some people. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. Our colleague Andy, Andy Johnson, was at the Innovation and Politics Awards oh. in Berlin. He's written about that for our members. Um, I don't think this project is very, this is very well known in the in the UK, hence uh, a lack of UK participation. Um, the Innovation and Politics Awards uh, is a set of awards for the best political projects from all over all over Europe. Uh, Eighty finalists, eight winners, lots uh, lots of representation from Ireland. We were there with an LJU Ireland hat on. Um, very little from England, um, but some amazing uh, some amazing projects and. Andy Swift Reid particularly sets out um, insights into into the Irish finalists. Um, some of the innovations you can read about there are Meath County Council's walkability mapping, uh, Longford Noor have um, incredible mapping of local histories that enable them to you know, people to really. It goes back to that same point actually, really understanding the nature of place, mm. and how it changes and, and might change. Um, so well worth uh, having a look at that briefing to see. Uh, where Andy shares his learning from all of that. Hmm. Um, a briefing just today, um, so yesterday by the time people listen to this, on on devolution and levelling oh, up. Leveling up. Yeah. Um, looking at, now we, as you said earlier, Andrew, we await the uh, white paper with interest, but there was quite a lengthy uh, section. In the Queen's speech. In the Queen's speech. Yeah. Um, so David Marlowe, one of our associates, uh, analyses that in some detail. So let's go to the news. So there have been several news stories over the past week or so about how towns and cities around the world are looking at ways to reduce emissions and to make the areas that they are, that their areas more sustainable and more livable. Um, and there are just three that I wanted to pick out um, from the UK that, that highlight some of the different strategies. So Nottingham City Council, uh, we read in Daily News on Sunday, uh, is aiming to become the first city in the UK to become carbon neutral. Um, mm. And so it's, it's, this, these plans have gone to consultation uh, and it involves transport, energy use, waste management and housing all being transformed to, to hit zero emissions by uh, 2028 which is a long time before the government's target of, of neutral emissions. I mean, I think this just highlights that, that some of the strategies that councils can adopt to really make a difference locally, which, which do add up to something quite significant on a bigger scale. No, we know that right. lots of councils yeah. have, have declared climate emergencies. And when this started happening, we were sort of saying, well, you know, that's really interesting, but what does that really mean in terms of how you act differently as a council? Um, and I think that that's quite... That's quite an interesting yeah. example. And as we've said before, it's it's interesting, though not possibly surprised, not surprising to us, I think, but maybe surprising that the councils are kind of more ambitious than government on this. Yeah, you know, so, exactly. Yeah, Sadiq Khan, as part of his re-election pitch, said, you know, I want London to be carbon neutral by 2030. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so these are not just more, but substantially, substantially yeah. more ambitious. Yeah. Um, and it, but it links into other, other sorts of targets around livability and, and air quality and so on because yeah. we know also that councils like Aberdeen City Council and uh, Brighton are considering ways to reduce or completely eliminate car travel within yeah. the city centre. Yeah. Also and, I mean they're, they're not the only ones you know we know that no, Greater Manchester no. is considering something similar and you know this is happening in pockets York, across the country. Bristol, Oxford, yeah. Cardiff, yeah. City of London all looking at similar things. My only concern is that we focus a lot on, on these targets and I think actually what this is less of a danger in the local ones because they're more immediate. With the national ones, we, we talk about these targets. 
we shouldn't forget that we are not currently meeting them. Yeah. So yeah. it's all very well to say, hey, we're, we're, we're bringing forward our, our net zero target from 2050 to 2045 or whatever. We're not there yet. Yeah. UK, you know, we've got COP um, in Glasgow this autumn, October or November. We need to get on top of, on top of our current progress mm -hmm. right now because otherwise we keep talking about where we want to be in the future. Where we are right now is not a good enough pathway to that. There was just one more item from the Daily News that I wanted to highlight just because it, it, it sort of emphasises that point that we're trying to make about working internationally and, and looking at the learning that, oh. that can be done uh, from international examples of local government. Um, Aberdeen City Council is sending a delegation of its childcare staff to visit some nurseries in Germany to receive some training yeah. for those responsible for initiating and developing uh, uh, nursery, outdoor nursery services. Yeah, outdoor nurseries. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just think that's a really, you know, that, that's, that's, that's great. You They're know, hardy I mean, folk so, in Aberdeen. You know, why, why wouldn't you look uh, overseas? Absolutely. For, for, Absolutely. For, for, for the like best for examples of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, you know, children are children. You know, yeah. if it works for nurseries in Germany, it can work for nurseries in Aberdeen. Yeah. You know, that's, that's exactly the sort of example we should be. We should be encouraging. Yeah. So that's a, a quick sort of run through of some of the some of the stuff we've been publishing over the last couple of weeks. Yep. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to tell us what you think uh, of LGIU Fortnightly. There are lots of ways you can do that. You can leave a review or a rating on your podcast app. And most helpfully of all, you can go to lgiu.org slash pod survey uh, and tell us tell us what you think. So there are two ways that you can <laughs> there are two, two. Well, or you could tweet you us, could, and you tell could us, phone us, or you could email us you at could info us, at LGIU. You could write us a letter. You could phone us, or you could even write us an old a letter. Yeah, that'd be nice yeah. to have a letter saying, well, if it says we enjoy the podcast, it wouldn't, wouldn't be so. Don't nice write to us and tell us you don't, don't like don't it. But if you do like it, then write us a but letter. But if you like it, <laughs> yeah. Um, with that, uh, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye-bye.